The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Ashes denote that fire was. Respect the grayest pile for the departed creature's sake that hovered there a while. Fire exists the first in light and then consolidates. Only the chemist can disclose into what carbonates. Emily Dickinson. Ash on an old man's sleeve is all the ash that burnt roses leave. Dust in the air suspended marks the place where a story ended. Dust in breath was a house, the walls, the wainscot, and the mouse, the death of hope and despair. This is the death of the air. T.S. Eliot The death of air, otherwise known as fire, combustion, or burning in which substances combine chemically with oxygen from the air, typically giving out bright light, heat, and smoke. Like all fire, fire lives and prospers through consumption. When harnessed, contained, and directed, fire can heat, warm, propel, and often destroy. But fire, when free of its chain, free of restraint, left to its chaotic nature and ravaging form, can and will wreak havoc on all fuel in reach. Those sharp split tongues have no mercy. The fireman's creed, where there are citizens in distress or harm's way, a special breed stands ready to answer the call. A common individual with uncommon desires forged by adversity, this person stands alongside their brothers and sisters, 
to serve their community and protect life and property. I am that firefighter, one declares with credence, and thus the fireman's prayer. When I am called to duty, God, whenever flames may rage, give me the strength to save some life, whatever be its age, or save an older person from the horror of that fate. Enable me to be alert and hear that weakest shout, and quickly and effectively put the fire out. Patron saint of firefighters, Saint Florian. Florian, 250 to 304 AD, was a high-ranking Roman army officer, known as being good with people and a natural problem solver. The fighter of fire, a noble profession and an organized effort with roots that grow deep into ancient Roman times, while under the rule of Caesar Augustus. Saint Florian to be invoked against fire and flood, and even the best of problem solvers know. The last resort is often to fight fire with fire. But what better element to fight fire than with but a flood of water? Keeping water and bucket on hand has always been a no-brainer when preventing combustion-borne catastrophes. And in more recent times, the smoke detector, fire extinguisher, fire exit, fire escape, and proactive laws, rules, and regulations intended to protect not only property, but the unnecessary loss of human life. Thus we have the modern day fire inspection. And on the icy morning of January 13th, 1993, Assistant Fire Chief for the Canton Fire Department, Howard Dye, was conducting such an inspection at the local Kroger store on the far east end of Chestnut Street. And after checking off all the right boxes and recertifying the establishment, Chief Dye was heading toward the north of the city for Walmart to carry out another inspection when a call came in. House fire, possible people trapped inside. The time, 9.31 a.m. Few minutes prior, Canton Police Officer Marty Brown had been dispatched to conduct a welfare check, a routine duty for officers who worked the morning shift as it was common to receive calls when elderly relatives didn't answer their phone or doors early in the morning. And usually upon arrival, the officer would find that the elderly person's hearing aid battery had simply died in the night, or that they had fallen and needed an ambulance ride to Graham Hospital for some x-rays, God forbid a broken hip. Still, sometimes an elderly person had indeed passed away in the night, which would result in a simple investigation and a call to the coroner. But on this cold January morning, where Marty Brown arrived at the address 365 South First Avenue, Canton, Illinois, he was told by a man named Max Scott, officer from the National Bank of Canton, that the house in which he stood in the front yard of was on fire. Max also says he had not made the call, and nor was he a resident of the home, but that he himself had just arrived to check on his employee, Trust Officer David Haynes who had arrived a few minutes prior to check on his secretary, 30-year-old Donna Tompkins, who had failed to come to work that morning with the ATM drop. Officer Brown then saw flames and rushed back to his squad car to radio in the fire. Just as rookie patrolman Rusty Graham was approaching from the south and saw the flames himself shooting out of the door on the south side of the home facing a pair of old rusty tracks, 
Then Officer Bowton and Graham helped the other residents of the large home, sectioned into four apartments, and they rushed out onto the lawn as the sound of glass being broken out of the windows in the back of the home caused a commotion. David Haynes was responsible for the ruckus. Making a U-turn, the roads were slick, and Assistant Chief Howard Dye had trouble keeping the department van on the road. Still, he managed to turn around and head south on First Avenue toward a column of smoke that swooped away in the wind to the south. One half block from the reported address, Chief Dye saw an engine pull up out front. The crew had arrived, led by Chief Robert Dorenzi, known simply as Slick or Chief. Lieutenant John Stanko, Illinois State Fire Investigator Craig Shaw, and so on, had also arrived, along with Fire Marshal Ted Anderson, who scolded David Haynes for breaking the windows out and venting the fire. And David scolded Fire Marshal Anderson right back for standing around and doing nothing, saying he needed to get off his ass and get in gear, that if Donna and her daughter Justine were still in the front room, that they were indeed surely dead by now. What in the hell are you waiting for, asked David. The fire is too hot and rapid to go inside. We need to use the crane to smash a hole in the roof to create a chimney to vent the smoke before we can enter, said Anderson. What in the hell are you talking about, asked David. I already vented the smoke, as indeed columns of smoke poured out of the windows in the side and back of the house. Give me a coat and oxygen, I'll go in, he shouted. Let us do our jobs behind the squad car now, demanded Anderson. About that time, the Coppers Creek Fire Department out of the nearby village of Banner, Illinois, as the Canton Fire Department needed the extra manpower and additional air pack. The team of seven all-volunteer had loaded into their own rescue van in pumper number 1510 and raced their way up Illinois Route 9 for the 10-mile drive to the fire on South First Avenue. Slick was barking orders before joining Lieutenant Stinkup and Fire Investigator Shaw preparing to enter the back of the residence into the windows David had already smashed out. The chief then called over Graham as he was carrying a ladder and gear around back. Rusty, I need you to be my safety line. Still, Officer Graham, the rookie he was, didn't know quite what he meant. But Graham got the gist and helped Slick put the ladder by the back window. I'm going to go in and look for victims, and if I find them, I'm going to need help getting them out. I need you also when I yell for you. With all the smoke, I'm not going to be able to see where the window is for me to get back out. So Graham stood on the ladder as the chief climbed in and Graham could hear him rummaging around on his hands and knees, moving stuff around as the black smoke poured out. And every minute or two, maybe about ten minutes total, perhaps a little longer, the chief would yell out every so often for Graham. And the officer would yell back so he could orient the chief to where the window was. And when the chief came back to the window, Graham couldn't see anything until suddenly the chief's helmet and face mask were right there in his face, and it startled him. And then the chief climbed out, took his air mask off, and said he thought he was in a bedroom for the way everything felt, but that he couldn't find any bodies or anybody around. It was then that the Copper's team, Steve Malgram, Gordy Romney, Bob Bartlett, Richard Ball, Randy Davis, Bob Clogg, and Terry Harrison arrived. Harrison behind the wheel could see the thick black smoke rushing from the chimney formed the roof of the house by the ladder team. The engine team, meanwhile, was dousing the flames out front as a growing crowd of onlookers behind the barrier of squad cars tried to make their way around to get a better view and were soaked by the mist and the frigid air. The Canton Fire Department, with enough on-duty firemen to handle rescue calls and small fires, with a big structure fire such as this, were still waiting on the cavalry of off-duty and volunteer firemen from the area to arrive and join the team to get the fire put out. Given the size the department was, they were known to be very aggressive 
believing if someone were to be inside a residence, a victim or anyone, any living thing. The first on-duty fireman to arrive was known to just grab their gear, their safety equipment and boom, go right in, right into the fire trying to save anyone they could, risking their own lives. A few of the initial crew had run a fire line from the closest hydrant just feet from the tracks that crossed First Avenue on the corner of the property. The other guys had thrown on their safety equipment, preparing to run right into the fire, as it spewed out in fierce licks lapping up what oxygen it could, like a dehydrated hellhound. Once geared up, the men were sprayed down, drenched before rushing into the home. And as they did, their coats steamed as they dried back to a starched, stiff asbestos-coated canvas. Meanwhile, the two responding officers, Graham and Brown, who had set up their cars to block traffic, maintained that perimeter in an attempt to keep back that steady stream of gawkers. As David Haynes approached in his agitated state, rambling practically incoherently, that he had come there that morning to check on his secretary, Donna. That there were some clear glass window panes by the door through which he could see into the apartment. But he didn't see anybody, and that he hadn't seen any smoke, nor flames, nothing. Shouting inside as he knocked, neither hearing anyone. Of course, in a time of no cell phones, other than expensive and uncommon bag phones, David had run to the neighbor's apartment and used their landline to call the police department for a well-being check. David said that after he called, he came back out and said it was at this point when he looked in through the glass once more and that he could now see smoke and fire inside the apartment. He said he panicked and began to break windows out, yelling to see if anybody was inside. David told the officers that that's when they had pulled up. The firemen now inside were spraying water everywhere. As the engine doused the roof, the mist covered the lawn and the helmets, shields and coats of all the personnel who had now arrived on scene. The fire had moved up through the walls and into the attic and the apartment upstairs. And one of the firefighters that was on scene, the commander, said, Hey, this is looking like a suspicious fire, suggesting there was no way this was electrical, caused by a short, so to speak. Believing the way that the fire looked to him, suspicious. As the word spread, officers on the scene called in detectives from back at the police department. And after nearly an hour and a half of fighting the blaze, it was announced that they had found two victims inside. The Coppers Creek Company, instructed by Lieutenant Stenko, was ordered to go inside and assist, as the Canton crew had already made their way in. They needed help with two bodies, he told Terry Harrison, and he and his boys suited up with air packs. At this point in time, everyone assumed it was Dawn and her daughter, but they were still fighting the fire, not entirely sure. It was in the walls and attic, as mentioned, and they had a hard time getting to it and thought they might lose the building, as some worried it would collapse. Then someone said, hey, if we need to get photographs on the scene, we better do it now because if it collapses, it'll be too late. Detective Marty Boat, having arrived, removed a camera from his squad car. Then he and Officer Graham were given helmets and fire jackets by two volunteers, oversized bulky coats that consumed their bodies within. Graham removed his police hat, threw it in his car, and put on a stocking cap due to the frigid cold, and then put on the helmet. Harrison entered the front door as the Canton crew was trying to fight the fire upstairs, spraying it down and trying to keep it knocked down. Harrison saw that Marty Boten had already entered the smoldering apartment, still flaming on the southwest wall. The officer took photos of the scene, mostly blackened and charred debris, and Harrison started dousing the fire to the right of the door as the flames still licked the ceiling. He then carefully headed into the dark back bathroom. Harrison knocked down the fire in the bathroom with a shot of water, 
and then use his axe to tear a hole in the wall. He then shot water inside the wall toward the ceiling, then tearing down some of the ceiling boards, assisted by Slick, he drenched what he could above the north wall of the apartment, the plaster, lath, and ceiling tiles in the area. Officer Graham flicked on his flashlight in the dark room. Though no longer choked full of smoke at this point, ash was all over, and it was nearly pitch black. Graham beamed his flashlight around the room, saw what looked like a couch or a fold-out bed, and then he stood frozen in shock. Graham could not register what he saw, what he believed to be a doll that lay half beneath a wooden chair. The doll was lying on its back on what was left of the melted foam mattress. Detective Bowden took a photo, and the flash of light lit up everything, including the head and shoulders of the roasted body of a dead little girl. Harrison had finished looking for hot spots and approached the sofa bed that sat in what appeared to be the living room. He raised his face mask to see a woman's body lying on the right side of the little girl. Both were in the nude, but the woman was lying close to the foot of the bed on her back. Her legs were pulled up, and if they had been stretched outward, they would have hung from the end of the mattress. Her arms were close to her sides, both hands charred, the skin on most of her body blackened and split. A realization came to everyone in the burnt-out room that moment, that these were most likely the bodies of mother and daughter, 30-year-old Donna and 3-year-old Justine. For Officer Grand, the lingering question remained, why the hell is this doll lying here? Reassuring himself, they said she had a daughter, so that's probably one of her toys. Then Detective Bowden took more photographs. Flash, flash, flash. And finally, etched by light into the rookie's mind, the dark realization. Oh, that's not a doll. That's the girl. That's little Justine. The firemen told the officers, if we tell you guys to run, head for the door and get out, because we don't know if we'll be able to save the structure. And Marty Bowden hurried taking as many pictures from all different angles of the bodies as he could in what time he had. From a distance of about six feet, Graham kept staring down at mother and child in utter disbelief. The officers were then told that they had to exit the building. And after Graham got out, he cleared his lungs and gave the helmet and coat back to the volunteer firefighter who had loaned them. Back inside, the chair was moved from the bed and Terry Harrison assisted Slick in placing the child in the body bag before carrying her out to the awaiting ambulance in the street. Afterward, as Harrison gathered himself, the chief returned to the house. Then with the help of Randy Davis, they carried out the woman before the onlooking crowd, sloshing around in the muck of slush and muddied snow. Canton Daily Ledger newspaper photographer David Pickle took exterior shots of the chaotic scene. Detective Bowden asked the on-scene fire commander, what was making him think the fire was suspicious, so what in the hell is going on here? And though the commander said little, something about his manner expressed clearly that there was something very wrong with the whole event. Detective Bowden then asked, where's the gentleman from the bank? And he found him over by Officer Graham's squad car as Graham was getting his name, David Haynes, date of birth, address, and so on. Everything noted down in a small notepad by his shivering hand. The first thing that stuck in both officers' minds as suspicious about David was that the victim worked at the same bank that he worked at, that she was his secretary, 
Of course, he was not only on the scene, he was the first to discover the fire and thus the victims. Detective Bowden took down David Haynes' statement, as did Fire Investigator Craig Shaw and State Fire Marshal Ted Anderson. He said Donna was about 30, 31 years of age and that she had worked at the bank for the past three years. But at one point, she had quit when she had a baby. The baby, Justine, born around Labor Day, 1989. David said that Donna returned full-time several months after she was born, and that he thought the child stayed at the YMCA during the day. David told the investigators that Donna was separated from her husband, John Tompkins, who resided near Cuba, Illinois, and farmed with his father, and that he believed their divorce was nearly final, John was the father of Donna's child, as far as David was aware. And Donna had told David that John had a bad temper and that she was always afraid of him. Donna Tompkins' maiden name was Amaguchi, originally from Connecticut. David said she had returned to Connecticut for Christmas with her father and family, and that her mother had died around a year ago. And Donna had a difficult time dealing with her death. David claimed he had always believed that her mother's death had something to do with her leaving John that basically she wanted a different life than the one that she had, while she still had time. David said he arrived for work at the bank around 8.15 a.m. that day, as he always had, and that Donna usually arrived shortly after at 8.30. He said he had a telephone call on a customer that morning, but that after the customer left, he was told that Donna had yet to arrive to work, that he called her at the apartment around 9 a.m., but that after several rings, her answering machine picked up. He did not leave a message and hung up the phone. And then another bank employee called the YMCA daycare center to check if Donna had dropped her daughter off yet. But they said that she had not arrived. And David told the investigators it was then that he decided to leave the bank and go to her apartment to check on her in person. He said that when he arrived at her apartment at about 9.15 a.m., he parked in the driveway behind her car at the rear of the house, walked around to the south side of the house through the snow to her door. He said he rang the doorbell but did not hear the doorbell ring from outside and that he had not yet noticed anything unusual. After getting no answer at Donna's door, he said he walked around to the west side of the house to Pauline Newcomb's apartment, the owner of the house. He reiterated that although Pauline owned the house, he was administered through a trust at the bank, with himself as the trust officer. David said he asked Miss Newcomb if he could use her phone to call the police. He then asked for a phone book to look up the non-emergency number for the police department. He called the department and told them of the problem. The person who answered the phone, he said, put him on hold. And after reaching the dispatcher, he again explained the situation, saying he would like an officer to come and do a welfare check on Donna. David then told the investigators that he had heard a noise on the other side of the wall as he hung up the phone. He said he was not sure what it was, but he told Miss Newcomb it might be a gas leak and for her to get out of the house. David said he then left Miss Newcomb's apartment and tried to look into the windows of Donna's apartment once more, but this time he claims he saw nothing. And it was then he said that he had decided that since the police had not yet arrived, he had to take some sort of action to get inside. So he went to a south side window where an air conditioner was located and pulled it out. And the second the AC came out, heavy smoke rolled out of the window in a blast of fire that nearly took his head off. David said he then ran back to the door. He said he reached in his hand and unlocked a deadbolt, and that when he opened the door, he encountered very thick smoke. David said he saw a bright glow straight ahead of him and slightly to his left, about three or four feet high from the floor. He described the glow as a bright red dome. David told the investigators that he thought Donna once told him that one of them sleeps in the living room and the other in the back bedroom, and that he decided to run to the windows on the east side of the building, and he broke them out with the same piece of metal, and then a shovel, which another man from an upstairs apartment had brought him. David said he could see a little bit of the bed, but could not see anyone, 
and that he then broke out a north window of the same bedroom, but still could not see anyone in the bed. At no time, David said when asked, had he ever heard a smoke detector sounding. He claimed he had given smoke detectors to the occupants of the second floor apartments around five years ago, but he was unsure if Donna's apartment had one. And he claims that there had been no recent problems with Donna's apartment or the building in general. David added that when Donna moved into the building, she had no heat, but that he had called Lucas Plumbing and that they repaired a problem with the boiler's thermostat. David said that Donna had lived in the apartment for four to five months and that he had arranged for her to move in because he knew it was vacant and available, that he was the building manager after all and collected the rent. David again said he had gone to the apartment to check on Donna because she was a dependable worker and that it was uncharacteristic of her just to not show. He said his first thought was in fact, that there might be some sort of gas leak in the apartment, that that is why she hadn't shown up. During further questioning about his actions upon first arrival at the scene, David said again that he opened the storm door and knocked the first time. But then David stated it was the window of the door he broke out, changing his story from initially claiming it had been the sidelight window that he had broken to unlock the door. And that when he had opened the south side entrance door and discovered the fire, he said he had singed his hair, showing them the crisp strands of his dark hair, mustache, and eyebrows. He told the investigators that he thought he had his gloves on when he opened the door, and that this was why he did not know if the knob was hot when asked. And he said he was unsure if he had closed the door when he exited. And David said he was confident he could hear a little crackling after he opened the door. About five to ten minutes later after he arrived, he said he had discovered the fire, and that the smoke was gray and black when he first removed the air conditioner from the window. The strangest thing I'd ever seen, he said. When asked, David said no. He had not noticed any recent changes in Dawn's personality. She had been more upbeat about the divorce and was anxious to have it finalized. But come to think of it, Donna had let him know that she would have a tough day at work on Tuesday because the second secretary was sick and she was awfully moody all day, even snapping at Officer Max Scott, which he felt was quite disrespectful. Max Scott, off to the side just out of earshot, patiently waited for his turn to give a statement so that he could get back to the bank. David said he had known that finances were tight for Donna, but that things were looking up recently due to potential court-ordered child support and an upcoming raise at the bank. And when asked, David said no, he did not think Donna was dating anyone, at least not that he was aware of, adding that there was probably not a closer friend to her at the bank than himself. And no, David said, of course I have never seen Donna smoke. The investigators informed David that they might contact him for any follow-up questioning. And then, as they moved on to Max Scott, David was approached by an insurance agent with a tape recorder who wanted to record an interview with him. David stated right off the bat, my brother's house in Monmouth had caught fire back in 92. And then David went on to state and forewarned the agent, if they find a fingerprint on the deadbolt, it's going to be mine. The order was made to notify Donna's husband, John, of his wife and their daughter's passing. And Officer Graham strolled the perimeter of the home, and upon returning to his squad car, his lieutenant pulled up. As Graham approached the vehicle, the lieutenant asked the rookie officer out of his window, Hey, what the hell is going on? And Graham said, This lady didn't show up to work. A co-worker came to check on her. Well, ended up that the house was on fire. And the victim and her daughter, well, they're deceased. And he goes on to tell the lieutenant that they were still fighting the fire in the attic and walls. Got it, said the lieutenant. As Graham explained that he had the roads all blocked off and the perimeter in place to keep the crowd away. And the lieutenant took a good long look at Grant, dirty uniform from head to toe, hat missing, and reprimanded him fiercely. Graham asked himself, you've got to be kidding me, before apologizing to his superior. I'm sorry, sir. I'll do better next time, sir. 
and then rolling up his window, the lieutenant drove away. Inside the burnout Victorian by the trap, investigators found amongst the remnants of the apartment a few notable pieces of evidence, an uncharred pillow tucked tightly between the sofa bed and the wall, a broken bottle of Southern Comfort whiskey under the bed, a gold Casio watch on the kitchen counter beside the sink, and lastly, a gold signet ring, upon which closer inspection revealed itself to be a 1938 Canton High School class ring with the initials engraved CJH. On January 13, 1993, at 10.05 a.m., Donna Jean Tompkins was declared dead by the coroner just 11 days before her 31st birthday. Four months into her third year of life, Justine Nicole Tompkins, deceased. The coroner had jotted down the conditions which gave rise to the immediate cause of death. Body found with fourth-degree burns involving virtually the entire body. As a result of a residential fire with no evidence, as of yet, that the fire was the cause of death. The bodies, already on their way to the county medical examiner's office, were rerouted to the state office in Springfield for autopsy. The fire was eventually extinguished, and the whole scene taped off with auxiliary officers stationed on 24-hour guard duty for what would become weeks of on-scene investigation. In a situation such as this, where so much manpower was required and so much water not to mention the fire damage itself, preserving intact evidence will be a real challenge, if not practically impossible. And amongst such chaos, first impressions are critical and supplemental, and Fire Marshal Ted Anderson had noted, based on his observations and career experience, that he believed the fire, which he described as rapid and intense, had started between 9.15 and 9 a.m., precisely between the time that David Haynes had first arrived on the scene and called the police for the well-being check and just minutes before the first firefighters had arrived. As word had begun to get around, as in small towns words tend to do, Canton was shaken. Such unforeseen tragedy tearing at the heart of the community. And as the sun set on the short winter day, rumors spread like wildfire into the night before the ash had even fallen from the heavens back to the hardened ground below. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at SpoonRiverGothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. 
This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. <laughs> 